0: All right, you guys ready? ready? All right, open up to Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 12. Today, we're going to be talking about a few things. So let me give you a list of what we're getting into. We're going to talk about what it means to be led by the Spirit. What it means to be led by the Spirit. What, it, what does the Bible mean when it talks about being led by the Spirit versus maybe what people today often think when they say that. Um, we'll talk about a couple of tests for whether or not you're saved. Yeah, a couple of tests or confirmations for whether or not you're you're really truly a believer. We'll talk about our motivation for living godly lives and how what motivates you to follow Jesus says something about you spiritually. So we'll talk about that and we'll talk about if Christianity is really a relationship with God or is that just some new idea that they came up with in the 70s? Um, Is it really about a relationship with God or is that a new idea? And finally we'll talk about the doctrine of adoption. theology of adoption and this is all just as we continue our verse-by-verse study of Romans 8 these are just the things that are coming up in the passage and then other verses as we will be going to a lot of Scripture today so Romans 8 verse 12 it says therefore brethren we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh for if you live according to the flesh you will die but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live for as many as are led by the spirit of god these are the sons of god this is this is talking here about our uh, the results of our salvation the, the consequences of being saved and i just want to point out again especially for the ladies when the bible's talking to girls it says ladies men or excuse me ladies women girls excuse me <laughs> the bible's not confused about gender at all <laughs> unlike a lot of a lot of people in our culture today Um, But when the Bible is talking to men, it'll say men or sons or something like that. Now, when it's talking to men and women, it uses an inclusive male term. So you, these are sons of God in verse 14 refers to sons and daughters, children of God. That's, that's entirely what it means. So let's kind of break this down. Um, First off, we get this phrase led by the spirit. As many as our, verse 14, led by the spirit of God. These are sons of God. Being led by the Spirit then becomes like a test or a way to confirm that you are in fact a Christian. And I don't mean Christian by name. I mean Christian by experience. I am born again into Christ. That if you're led by the Spirit, then it's evidence that you are in fact a child of God. So then the question is, what does that mean to be led by the Spirit? I find that a lot of people I encounter, they think led by the Spirit means having what back in the day they would call unctions. There's a word you may have not have heard recently, although Scrabble fans will know it well. Um, Unctions, having an unction is like the idea of like, I have just like an impression, like I feel like God wants me to do this. I remember hearing a story about a guy who was driving down the street and he felt like the Lord told him, pull over on the side of the road, like pull over at this liquor store. So he pulls over at this liquor store, buy some milk. So he buys some milk and he drives off and he felt like the Lord says, "Turn turn here. So he turns, turn here. So he turns, turn here. So he turns, then park. So he parks. And he's like, Lord, what am I doing? This is weird. And so then he feels like the Holy Spirit tells him, take the milk and go up and give it to this house. So he goes up to the house and he knocks on the door. Knock, knock, knock. And he starts hearing this crying baby. And this man opens the door and he's angry. He's got this baby crying and he's mad. What do you want? And the guy says, I felt like God wanted me to give me this milk. So he hands the milk to the guy. And the guy starts crying. And he says, my baby's crying because we don't have any more milk. We don't have any more food for the baby. Now, I told this story. Now, I don't, I, I don't honestly know if this is a true story or if this is one of those stories that kind of grows in the telling. I don't know. Maybe it's entirely accurate or maybe it grew in the telling because I don't know the original source. I told this story one time to, uh, to a, uh, a college ministry that when I was teaching the youth, the young adults ministry back like 80 years ago. and And one of the guys— left, and he calls me later, I won't tell you who, because you know him, and, and he calls me later, he, he left that group, and he calls me later, a couple days later, and he's like, Mike, after I heard that study, man, I was like, oh, I want to, that's so awesome, God, I want to have, like, you leading me, led by the Spirit, so, like, I felt led, and I, like, went to this liquor store, and I bought this bottle of milk, this, now, this is true, okay, I'm not making this up, and then I drove, and I felt like, turn here? Turn here and I stopped and I, I went up to the house and I knocked on the door and they didn't, they didn't need any milk at all. <laughs> so he's like, I just felt really weird. Yeah. Um, this is not what's meant by the phrase led by the spirit. In Romans 8, it is not talking about like little like nudges. Unctions leadings like that from God. I'm not saying God can't do that. God can do that, but we can also fabricate it very easily And so then their battle for us is I'm here is of the Lord kind of thing You know, I mean like of course God can reveal these things soon I believe he does, but I also think that we have to watch ourselves and we have to be thoughtful about About filtering these things to test it and make sure it's of the Lord and not just of my own heart Obviously him the, the, the second story going to the liquor store was of his own heart because he was trying he well, I want to serve out it came from a great heart don't get me wrong, but obviously, uh, yeah, not the Lord. But what is meant here by Paul, in context of Romans, he's talking about righteous living, not unctions or leadings of say this to this person, but rather love that person, be faithful, keep your promises, pay your debts, work hard. He's talking about righteous living that the led by the Spirit in the context of Romans 8 is about righteous living. Let let me read to you an example of this sort of theology from Paul because it's in Galatians 5 as well. So I'm going to read Galatians 5 verses 16 through 25. And look at how he describes walking in the Spirit and it's not unctions. I say then walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, because the list of sins can just go on forever. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Some people think I'm led by the Spirit when they lose control. But the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So how is that possible? That couldn't be it. Against such there is no law, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Then he concludes, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Being led by the Spirit means being led in these fruits. Not in the flesh, not in the works of the flesh, but in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, faithfulness, kindness, goodness, self-control. These are the qualities of one who's led by the Spirit. So, spiritual gifts are important, but they're more occasional, whereas walking in the Spirit is constant. Some people will try to bolster their feelings of spirituality by thinking, I had a word for that person. Now I feel, you know, spiritual. Spiritual. But if I don't have godly character in my life, this doesn't count for a whole lot. It really doesn't. Walking in the spirit is about walking in a righteous, like in tune with God's spirit in my life way of living. So spiritual gifts are are a blessing, but the focus shouldn't be on those gifts. And Paul talks about this with the Corinthians when he says, oh yeah, desire to prophecy, all this stuff, but the greatest is love. And he tries to redirect them to 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 the thing we should be constantly doing, not occasionally doing. I think that if we focus on gifts instead of focusing on, on, on godliness in our lives, that we start to evaluate people in really weird ways. What happens is you look at somebody and you see that they have some particular gift set. Man, they're so encouraging. Oh man, they're such a good teacher. Man, it's like a really powerful, impactful worship leader that that person is. Oh man, look at that person. They just go up to anybody and talk to them about the gospel and they can evangelize. And we start to like evaluate, I don't know, like the, the, the health of somebody's walk with the Lord based upon the quality of their gifts, when what matters more is walking in the Spirit. That's why Paul says to the Corinthians, right? Though, though I have all the languages in the world and I speak in them, though I have all the gifts, though I offer my body to be burned, if I don't have love, I am nothing. It profits me nothing. It amounts to zilch. And love is what? The fruit of the Spirit. So that being said, Romans 8 verse 14, as many as are led by the Spirit, that is, you can see that they are following Jesus in their lives. That is the led by the Spirit in that, in that context. And this sort of ch- changes things. We realize that we might have a modern colloquial way of saying led by the Spirit, when it actually the biblical term is more often talking about righteousness. Than perhaps those types of unctions, which I do believe happen, but they're not the emphasis here. Um, now, you might say to me, but Mike, verse 13 sounds like a warning. I mean, let's read verse 13 again. Romans 8, 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It seems kind of like a warning. Like, is that saying like I'm positionally in Christ and then I've automatically... I'm living according to the spirit, not the flesh. Well, there's a truth to that. In a sense, I want to say yes, but this kind of is a warning. And without getting into the issue, at least tonight, about can you lose your salvation or not lose your salvation, this doesn't help the person who's wondering, but am I saved in the first place? And this warning is legit for that person. If you're saved, you haven't had an you've had an encounter with God's Holy Spirit in your life. You're going to be different now. You're going to live by the Spirit. It, will it be perfect? No, I wish. I really, I strongly wish. I mean, we've all done the robot prayer. Lord, just, just take control of me. Just take over. Jesus, take the wheel. And he's like, no, just turn right. I just go where I tell you to go, but you, you'll be in the, behind the wheel. I'll I'll tell you what to do and you follow. I don't want to follow. I want you to make me follow. That's like the opposite of following though, right? The robot prayer is another way of saying, God, I'm not going to obey you. So I've learned through experience not to do that, uh, but instead to to die to yourself and take up your cross and follow. Um, So I do think this is talking about a positional reality that results in a conditional one. Because if you're not born again, you can't be led by the Spirit. It's not as though you're unsaved and you're going, I will now walk in the Spirit and become saved. It's it's a result of salvation. It's because you're saved. But the warning is real because yet there are many people, many, many people, I might say, even maybe an extra many in there, many, many, many people who are going, am I really saved? Like, do I really see the transformation of my life brought by faith and trust in Christ? Do I see these things? And I think this, before we too quickly try to comfort them or too quickly try to condemn them, we should let the question sit upon their heart a little for a little while as they ponder this and think and they look at their lives and go, has my life been transformed by Jesus? Because a life that encounters Christ for real is changed. <laughs> you are changed. There is a difference. So as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Uh, now we can see this through the overall context. Um, so what I want to do is, so you don't take verse 13 out of context and use it to condemn it's good to evaluate but not to condemn Let's back up to Romans 8 1 and what I want to do now is read Romans 8 1 all the way through 13 or 14 Excuse me to give us context You might be like Mike you're cheating and you're supposed to be teaching the Bible here but you are just reading the text. Yes, but this is the best part of the study <laughs> So let's just read it in context thinking over the past couple weeks all of the meat that we've been getting in this passage Let's try to now recall it as we read through it. So Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So is there a category of someone who's in Christ but is condemned? No. No. If you're in him, you're not. Then we have this passage which probably is not in the text. Uh, who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. That's from two weeks ago. We talked about that. Verse 2 For the law of sin, of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did. By sinning his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God." Now, do you see in the context, it's a, it's a positional reality of salvation that results in the condition of now walk in the Spirit. That's the overall flow of the text, that's the emphasis of it. Um, And Paul finally applies all that stuff he's been building up to when he says in verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. We are debtors. This is Paul's application of these glorious truths of salvation. You are saved by grace and now you are a debtor. You owe. You owe a debt. A debt you cannot repay in all eternity. You cannot fully repay this nor would you even attempt to but you are still a debtor. You are the type of debtor who says I could never pay back that debt but I will always, always live an attitude of gratitude and thankfulness for the thing which was paid. So we are debtors and we are going to talk now about reasons that we have to live right lives as Christians. So what what is your motive, I wonder? When you're confronted with sin or temptation, when you're confronted with personal benefit or or suffering because you're going to honor God in some way, when you're confronted with having to love your enemies, bless those who curse you, pray for those who spitefully use you, when you're confronted with some secret quiet temptation, what is your motive for not doing the, the wrong thing and for actually doing the right thing instead? So I'm going to give you guys, um, I think six, let me just make sure, yeah, six different motives and I want you to test something. Based on what Paul's writing and what other scriptures say, these are motives we have for living rightly and for putting off wrong living. I want you to test yourself as you hear these motives, ask yourself, what of these is my chief motive for not sinning and for doing righteousness instead? This is a great spiritual test. It's not meant to condemn, it's meant to to cause a self-evaluation. Let me think about this. What's my motive? So first off we have what we have right here in the passage in verse 12. We're debtors Because we're not to live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit because of our new birth So the first motive for the christian is our new nature Why would you sin? That's not who you are That's not who I am anymore It's not who I am anymore That's the first motive we have if you're in christ christ is in you and you You are not even that person anymore. You are now separated from that old life of sin. That might be one of your motives. Now we move to other passages. We have things like um, 1 Corinthians 6.20, which tells us that another motive for living right lives as Christians is because we owe God. We owe him everything. This is implied in Paul when he says debtors. But 1 Corinthians 6.20, it says, for you are bought at a price. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That I, I belong to God. I, I don't even own me anymore. I, mean, I don't belong to me. You know, when you're, when you're on company time, you do company things. When you're on, on the job, it's not my, really my time right now. So I, 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 I owe them this time. Well, I'm, my whole life is owned by God. My eternity is owned by him. My soul was purchased by him. So I owe him a debt. So are you motivated by a sense of debt to God? That's not a bad motivation. That's a good thing. It's a quality thing You go, Lord you purchased my life and I owe you. Here's another motive that you might impl- influence you. Because sin is bad. This is complicated stuff, you might want to write it down. Sin is bad. Sin is bad. Romans seven thirteen, it says, but sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. So that we would realize how bad sin is. A Renewed mind should see this. I know that when I first came to Christ. I didn't think sin was that bad I just thought I was in a lot of trouble for it (laughs) Do you know what I mean? You're like it's not that sins so evil It's just that I'm in a lot of trouble over the sins But then you come to Christ and you get a renewed mind and you start to realize how evil sin is and the badness of it Just shocks you and it rips into your heart and you're like, oh, I don't want that. That's disgusting. It's I have a friend that um his family would his his father's Japanese his 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 mother's Jewish and they would they would feed him sushi as a kid but he didn't like to eat the fish but you know what he loved he loved something called smelt egg Smelt egg is like a caviar but it's just and it's it's a it's a less expensive caviar but it's actually really Yummy, okay? And he loved it. It's like a kid food almost. It's a little bit sweet. And it's these tiny, tiny little, little, little balls, whatever those happen to be. And they just could have pop in your mouth and they're sweet. And he would just eat, eat it by the spoonful, this stuff. Well, one point in his life, someone told him what it was. And he told me the story and says, once I found out what smelt egg was, I would never eat it again. Even though I loved it before. Once I found out what it was, it disgusted me. This is the realization we have towards sin. The world celebrates sin, the world thinks sin is beautiful, sin is wonderful, sin is shiny, right? It's so, it's so good, it's sinful. Like, this is one of the most foolish statements I've ever heard in my whole life. You know, they, they, they call, I mean, I drive by the gentlemen's clubs, right? You see them, gentlemen's club, and you're like, that is not a gentleman's club. Like, gentlemen don't do this. They don't go to places like this. It's just, you start to see it for what it is. You're seeing sin for how bad sin is and, it's, and it hits your own life because you see your sin and how bad it is. And one day you suddenly think, Jesus died for that. My Lord died for that. And you see how bad sin is and that's a motive to not do it. But there's another motive. Number four, because righteousness is good. It's one thing to know that sin is bad, but you know, there's a whole other side of the coin that sometimes people miss. Righteousness is good. Psalm 33 verse 5, speaking of God, it says he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Righteousness is a good thing. God loves it. Proverbs 22 1, it says, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver and gold. A good name, a good reputation, a reputation of being a godly man or a godly woman, better than being rich. Better than, than owning some giant company and having all that money, which everybody who is up, up there realizes that this isn't even up. I just have money. (laughs) But a good name, a good name is better. To be known as a godly man or a godly woman, when you see that righteousness is good, you get a craving for it. You get a craving to serve God. Now, none of this is for salvation. We're not, we're not saved by our works. In fact, it's, it's an insult to Christ to imply that any work would help me in my salvation. But it is because of my salvation. It is because righteousness is good now that I want to live it out. So maybe the goodness of righteousness is one of your motives. And I think that is a deeper spiritual motive that we grow into as we mature in Christ. As we grow in Christ, we learn the goodness of righteousness. We start to, to love it. It is not just like, oh, I should do the right thing. It is like, man, oh, it is the right thing. Like it is almost exciting even if it is self-sacrificial because it is right. It is good. Number four, again, apparently I numbered them. There's two number fours. Okay, I'm going to give you seven things. <laughs> I, I, missed, I thought I one later and added it in. That's why. All right, so uh, number five, because we have a calling. Because you have a calling. So, so far I've given you because it's according to your nature, because uh, we owe God everything, we're debtors, because sin is bad, because righteousness is good, and five, because we have a calling. We have a calling. You know, sometimes when I'm talking or teaching, I'll actually reference a specific person in the audience. I'll like, I'll like call them out in a sense, not in a bad way. I don't usually do that. Sometimes with youth ministry, (laughs) sometimes just with one kid. But but sometimes I call people out. And what's funny is that that look on their face when they're like, he's, wait, you, wait, me? (laughs) Like, you were really talking to me? Where I'm talking to them, I'm calling them, and they don't know it, because they just sort of see my words as being like for all the audience, but not for them personally. Some people, they read the Bible like that, you know? It's like, oh, the Bible, yeah, it's for everybody, but they're not reading it like it's for them. One of our motives for righteousness is because we have a calling, and by we, I mean you, you. right? You have a calling, a calling for righteousness, a calling for love to God, a calling to be someone for God. Let me read to you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Listen to this. And let me ask you as I read it. Can you hear this talking to you? Not the crowd, but you. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy, beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak of you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify, glorify God in the day of visitation." Do you hear that? That's, that's you. Like you're part of that holy nation. You're part of that special people. You're called out to abstain from those things so that you can proclaim the praises of the one who called you. It's, there is a high and lofty calling that we've been given. Now we aren't worthy of it. We don't deserve it. But doesn't that make it even more motivation to step into this thing God's given me and live out this godly, holy life that he's called me to live? Not for salvation. But I almost feel like I hear in the back of someone's head going, Mike, are you preaching works for salvation? I'll be like, no, I'm not. Now stop avoiding the issue. We are called to live a godly life, nothing less, as Christians. It's not how I'm saved. It's not how I maintain my salvation or obtain my salvation. It's my calling. It's my calling. Number six, because of love. Because of love. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 14 and 15, it says, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Remember the greatest of these is love? I think of all these motivations, the greatest one is right here, because of love. My motive for honoring God, my motive for serving God, love. Now I've given you the highest motivation. I wonder if that might be yours. I hope, I hope, I'm sure it factors in somewhere but I hope it's up there towards the top of your motives. Now I'm going to give you the lowest. What's the lowest motive for for doing right and not doing wrong? Number seven, because of consequences. (laughs) That's the lowest motive because it's more selfish typically than, than the other motives. Uh, because of consequences and here's Galatians 6-7. It says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows that he will also reap. Broken families, pain, ruined reputations, illness, guilt, financial ruin, prison, death. These are all consequences of sin, potential consequences of different sins and maybe that motivates you. In fact, maybe your primary motivation for not sinning is consequences in which case You're on the the lowest rung of the motivation ladder for serving Jesus. I'm glad you're on it. Don't get me wrong. But it's time to climb higher. It's time to look at these other possible motives and say, why am I really following Jesus, you know? Where does love factor in? In fact, if love is your chief motive, you don't even need a lot of the other ones. You notice that? You're like, and what about the consequences? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. But man, I'm doing it for love. I'm doing it for my love for God. Like Jesus said, if you love me, you'll be my command. So, so, um, this is, this is where he's like, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, right? But to walk in the spirit. This is, this is our debt. This is our, our, uh, our, our calling, our commitment, and all these beautiful reasons to do it. Now, I want to make an important point before we move on to verse 15. And it's this, that Paul's doing theology. We've been doing lots of theology. But have you noticed that salvation and theology it's not just a doctrine it's an experience in this in this book and this is consistent with the rest of the scriptures It's an experience and a doctrine. It's not one or the other. I mean saved people do affirm doctrines like you can't be a Christian and not have any doctrine There are some people out there living in fantasy land like like in the the third door from the right in Willy Wonka's playhouse and they think that you can be Christian without having any set beliefs any specific doctrines that you hold to Well, we hold to certain specific doctrines. You're not not a believer. If you don't believe things, specific things, you're not a Christian. But Christianity is not just doctrine. It's also living it out. And notice how, how Paul, he marries the doctrine with the application. He talks about how you're saved, and then he just goes right into how your life should look because of it. It's the doctrine goes right into application. So I, I, I know I've heard the phrase, you know, Christianity is not a doctrine. Well, it, it includes doctrine, but it's not just doctrine. You've also heard Christianity is a, a relationship, not a religion. We've all heard that before. When I was, when I was much younger, I, I, I said that. I remember saying it and I know what I meant by it. And what I meant was mostly accurate-ish. But when you actually think about it, Christianity is a religion. The important thing is it is not just a religion, it is a relationship. There is that really popular viral video that got out there that said, you know, why I hate religion and love Jesus. I would be like, well, Jesus does not hate religion and if you really love him, you probably should not say that. What he loves is true religion, genuine religion, religion that is pleasing in the eyes of God. But you can't get away from the word religion as though just by doing that you are demonizing, you are demonizing all religions. I mean Christianity is a religion, did you not notice? The thing is, it's true, (laughs) and if your Christianity is merely religion, merely the practices of going to church, practice of reading the Bible, practice of having a time of prayer, but not a relationship with God, where you walk in the Spirit, and you fellowship with Him, and you truly believe in His Son. If it's not those things, then it's, then it's empty religion at that point. So Christianity, not just a religion, Christianity, not just doctrine, it's also the experience. It's also the experience. And so this brings up a conversation I had recently with, uh, with, um, with a, uh, an uh, agnostic, I think, guy I was speaking with. Very friendly conversation, good conversation. And he mentioned to me about the idea of Christians having a relationship with God. And he says, you know, I'm not sure about this, but I've heard that Christianity having this emphasis on relationship is more of a new thing. That like if you go back a hundred or two hundred years, you go back to, you know, several hundred years, go back to the Renaissance, go back even further than that, you start getting where it was just religion, it wasn't relationship. And I thought, hmm, and my theory is if I hear an idea come out of the mouth of one agnostic or atheist, then it's probably in the minds of a whole lot. You know, you hear a question from one person, probably a lot of people have that same question or idea. So some people think that the whole concept of Christianity is a relationship focus, not just religion, is a new idea. But what does the scripture say? Let's look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Now, Now Paul's been talking about life change because of faith in Christ. And now he's talking about deep personal relationship with God with all those who have who have Christ all those who are saved they have this So let's let's look at this verse and we'll we'll see that this is not a new idea at all We're talking we're talking from the beginning from the beginning Christianity has been the same thing Um, so you do not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear Not of bondage again to fear what is that I think that's the pre-christ life Remember the the theme going through Romans is sin and death, sin and death, sin and death. He who commits sin is a slave of sin. You're caught up in slavery to sin, but you're no longer slaves to sin because now you're which brings death, you know, now you're gonna be slaves to Christ. But you didn't receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. So you're not this works based performance for salvation. Oh, you failed, now you're caught up in sin, you're stuck in it. That's not what we received. Christians, you do not get a blank slate. Like if I got a blank slate when I came to Christ, I would have ruined it. I have sinned more after coming to Christ, because of the age at which I did it, than I did before. I'd be in so much trouble. So I'm glad we don't have blank slate, or else I'd be like, as soon as you're safe, please just get hit by a bus. (laughs) Before it's too late, you know? You go to like, go up to like a revival meeting, and then just jump off a cliff on your way down the mountain, because you're not going to make it. Um, So we didn't receive that kind of bondage again to fear. That would be the fear of judgment. So 1 John 4 18 talks about the same idea. It says, There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. What's this fear involves torment? We're talking about here punishment. Fears like, Lord, I'm not only going to have consequences for my sin, but eternal judgment for my sin. No, you're not. You're in Christ. You're in Christ. You need to let God's love cast out that fear. Um, so we have not been positionally put into a relationship of works. We've been positionally put into a relationship of adoption. This is a very different thing. But some people they think we do have that spirit of works and that's very sad. They live their Christian life in, in, in two sort of, they're sort of bipolar Christians, right? At one point, they're very happy and they're stoked about their walk with God because they feel like they've got everything lined up right. And they look at the rest of the church and they think you're all compromised. I'm the only one who really loves Jesus. And then they find error in themselves, finally. And and they swing way over to the other side, and now they're condemning themselves. And they're like, can you pray for me, Pastor? I don't know if I'm really Christian. And then they feel good. And they swing back over to like, I can't believe that that girl wore that to church. (laughs) And then they're, so they become either judgmental to others or judgmental to themselves and they kind of swing between. And you will see this most often in my experience, those who are the most judgmental to others are just in between judging themselves (laughs) a lot of the time Um, because they have that spirit of of bondage again to fear. But that's what we do not have in Christ. What we have in Christ is described as adoption. Adoption. Now, could there be a more relational term To describe your position in Christ. Not just saved. Adopted. There are whole sections of theology about this concept of adoption. Ephesians 1 talks about how we were were adopted in Christ before the foundation of the world. Meaning that this was always part of the plan. It was always part of the plan was God adopting us into his his family as his children. Um, You could talk about, about how if you're adopted that means you're not naturally children of God in this sense. But everyone's a child of God yeah We should be more careful with our theology. That's not entirely true. We're all His creations, but we're not all His children in that family sense. That's through Christ you become adopted. But you don't need a degree in Roman culture to understand this concept of adoption. So I don't want to get too caught up in like parsing the, the term. You're adopted, think about it. You're adopted into Christ. This is positional. I mean, this is like, oh yeah, position. What an amazing positional word for my position in Christ. I'm adopted. I'm adopted God treats me as his adopted son. Do I feel like the hammer's about to fall? What kind of father do you think you have? Would you do that? I hope not. <laughs> I'm going to adopt this child, but don't you mess up, because I can unadopt you just like that. <laughs> not, not really, no. <laughs> you can't. No, this was the plan. We are adopted. We have the spirit of adoption. Um, 1 John 3 talks about this. Verses 1 through 3 it says. And think about this. Because here when it says behold, it's asking you to actually stop and think about it. Behold what manner of love, what quality of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Think of how magnanimous God is. He creates the universe from nothing. He just designs the laws of physics. He speaks all things into existence. He, he is righteous and holy. He is all-powerful. He's eternal. He's all this wonderful stuff and he's gonna call you his child. He's adopting you. Behold, what kind of love is this? Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. That's part of that motivation. It's, it's, it's the who I am motivation, right? I'm a child of God. So I want to walk in holiness. Wow. We have the spirit of adoption. This, is, this should be the way you relate with God. It should be as a child of God where you can say, God, you're my father. You are my father. It's the spirit of adoption. The Bible says the Holy Spirit is actually the seal or the guarantee or the promise that we're going to get saved eventually from final judgment because he's sealed us or promised us his Holy Spirit. It says, uh, first, uh, Second Corinthians one twenty two, who has also sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, as a guarantee. Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14 it says in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance our future glory and hope until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So we have all these different elements in adoption. I mean there's like a lot of different facets and things to think about with it but let's not lose the main point. God's saying, you're my child, I'm your father now. That's permanent. That's pretty neat. In fact, it even uses the term in, in Romans 8.15, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. A lot of you know this. Abba, it's like a term meaning like dad or daddy or papa. It's, a, it's an endearing term. It's an endearing term. He's my Abba, Father, my dear father, my close father. I love calling God Father. You know Jesus called God Father most of the time when he prayed. There's one instance where he didn't and that was when he was on the cross. When he called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that was him taking our place so he could give us his place and now we can call God Father. God is my Father and this blesses me so much and it did right from the start when I first came to Christ. I just remember Just loving that God's my father, that personal relationship with him. I mean, I, I, yes, it's true. I had, I had father issues big time. But here's the thing. So often people compare God's fatherhood to the fatherhood you've experienced in this world, as though God can only be as good as whatever father you had on earth. And this is really foolish in my opinion. Yes, I had father issues. Sure. Um, Raise your hand if you didn't have any father issues. Anybody? All right, we got three in the room. Okay. Yes, your dad was a sinner. <laughs> your, your challenge is to make, make sure your kids don't have father issues. That's, that's, the, that's the challenge for us, right? I want to make sure my kids don't have that. But, but the relationship with God is so much deeper, so much better. It is not a replacement for an earthly father that wasn't there. It goes way above and beyond this. It's just, it, it shouldn't be compared. I should not be comparing my earthly father to my heavenly father. My adoption with God is so much bigger and better than this. And I've known, I knew a, a pastor who shared a story one time, and, and I'll share this for your sakes, because it might be in your mind this way and maybe it'll help. And he shared the story and he says, people used to say that God was my father, and uh, that bugged me because my dad was messed up. And he was kind of mad when he shared this. <laughs> you know, sometimes people are angry. Yeah, you know, I've messed up, you told me God was my father, and that didn't help me at all. And then one day, one day I just realized, God's my daddy, <laughs> and so it changed everything for me, and I realized God's my daddy, and I'm like, good for you, nincompoop, but switching the name from father to daddy didn't change anything. What happened was your heart allowed you to separate who God is from who your earthly dad was, like, but none of us should think that our earthly father is like God, like that's like idolatry, right? like that's weird, I should look at God and see him for who he is. Totally other, totally different, so much better, not even a replacement. No, 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 no. Because it's not like if you have a great earthly father, you don't need God. (laughs) Good luck with that. God is so much better than that. And if you do have, you know, father issues, so to speak, that's the, the, it's almost like kind of demeaning to put it that way. But if you, if you have, you know, a history and and drama and trauma in your past because of your father, um, I would just say, don't even, don't even go there. God is so much better and bigger than that. Um, Scripture says, even when my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will uphold me. He's so much better and so much bigger than that. So don't limit his fatherhood in your life to some earthly experience that you've had with some other human being. That's irrelevant. Um, God is so much better than that. So by his spirit we cry out, Abba, Father. This is actually an experiential thing that the spirit gives to me a relationship with God, Christianity's relationship. It's religion. Oh, but it's so much more than just religion. And if you compare the experience that Christians have with the experience that other people have in other religions, you'll see that what they have are smells and bells, oftentimes, and what we have is relationship, which is why we don't care if we're meeting a warehouse or if you have pews or, or folding chairs or whatever it is you've got. This is all just the window dressing. Verse 16, it continues this idea and it says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now this gets even deeper because it now is saying that the Holy Spirit will give you some sense of assurance that you actually have this adopted relationship with God. This is what we call assurance. Assurance of salvation. This is not salvation. Salvation is is being saved. Assurance of salvation is you knowing that you're saved because you can be saved and question it, be unsure, or you can be saved and be assured. So we're talking here about assurance of salvation. So the questions I have as I'm reading this verse, the spirit bears witness with, with my spirit that I'm a child of God is what is this witness like and am I experiencing it? Let me first say what it's not. It's not tongues. This is not speaking in tongues. And if somebody's reading this verse and then they use it to say, therefore you have to speak in tongues and that's the spirit bearing witness that you're a child of God, you're full of baloney. That is not what's in the text. Spiritual gifts comes up in Romans 12. He's not there yet because spiritual gifts are not central to the Christian life in that sense. What is, is your relationship with the Lord. That's central. So what's this witness... It's, well, part of it could be walking in the spirit. I mean, that's what he's talked about already, is if you have the spirit of Christ, you'll be walking in the spirit. So there's an element of that there, but this seems to be a little different, doesn't it? The spirit bears witness with my spirit. His spirit's communicating to my spirit that I'm a child of God. So it's this sense of real relationship and belonging to God. That's what it is. It's an inner sense of relationship with God. Now, could somebody fabricate this? Yes, but the spirit could also give it to you. I have this sense of relationship with God. I call him Abba Father. It's not a message like I'm receiving, you're a child of God, but rather it's it's relational. It's, I now am enabled to walk in relationship with God. Abba, He's my Abba Father. I know you, God. I'm known by you. I'm in you. That's what it is. Have you experienced this? Now, I don't know if you experience it 24-7. I don't know if it's like, you know, I've got the flu. I'm throwing up and not feeling very good. And my body aches and stuff. But inside my heart, deep in my heart, there's this just Abba Father's just going on. Maybe it is. Maybe there's times where you're just like, I don't know what I'm feeling right now. My emotions are this and that. But it doesn't talk here about emotions, does it? It says the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that you're a child of God. Now, I've experienced this. Um... In, in all honesty look at myself really honestly go how have I experienced this? this sense of relationship with God as my father very intensely very strongly very genuinely yes have I always felt it at all times no but, but most often yes <laughs> just that sense of relationship um, now some people they reduce relationship go- with God to just provision and if you are lacking this Holy Spirit relationship with God you will reduce your relationship with God to what he does for you instead of just to who he is and who you are in him. Now, this will sadden those who have a real relationship with God. If I reduce my relationship with God to just like, Lord, help me with this. Lord, give me this, give me this, give me this, give me that. Do this, do this, do that. If that's the extent, if God is your cosmic vending machine, and that's the extent, like, you heard the old uh, giving, the giving tree, I think it was what it was called, the old story, right? The little kid, like, plays on the tree and... I forget the whole story, but it's something like he uses the tree when he's a kid, like maybe makes sticks and swords out of it or something. And then it gets bigger and it's does make swings from it or something like that. And he gets bigger and he's like sitting with this girl under the tree and it gets bigger. And then he gets big. Now he's eventually he gets old and he's just like sitting under the shade of the tree. And then he gets even older and the tree's been cut down. And now he just sits on the stump and the tree's like, I'm just here just to sit on me. Like that is not God. Yes, God gives, but it's not like I'm here just to be used and abused by you. Just come sit on me. I don't think that's a good analogy for who God is. It might be an illustration of how much he gives to ungrateful people sometimes. That it is. But that cheapens our walk with God. And if that seems cheap to you and it seems like it does not reflect your walk with God, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Our spirit is a relationship point between us and God. not our our bodies but our spirit and in that we experience the witness of the Holy Spirit which brings uh, an affirmation or an assurance of our salvation so do people always have this sense constantly Um, I don't don't think it says that Um, can can some people be self-deluded yes and that's why we partner this with other things like the fruit of the spirit and seeing the actual evidence of Christ in your life Um, but but as we're closing I want to just encourage this Notice how Paul, again, he mixes theology with experience as though you can't have one without the other. You just, you can't have one without the other. Theology leads right into experience, and this should be the norm for us. If theology is not exciting to you, it's because you're, you're, you're playing from the bench. You ever been that kid? You're on the sports team, but you're on the bench the whole time? I'm sorry if that was, if that was your experience. Some people do Christianity that way. I'm on the team, really, I am. What do you do? Oh, I just keep the spot on the bench really warm. That's what I do. Um, that's theology without experience. So that kid at practices, when, he's, when they're all learning the plays, he's sitting there like, what's the point? Why am I going to learn the plays? I'm not playing anyways. That's theology without experience. But to the believer who's following Jesus and living their life for Christ, and they want to be just right in there, man, I want to do whatever you tell me to do, Lord. Theology is exciting to them because it applies it applies so this should be the norm for us if theology is not exciting to you it's because you're just doing it halfway you're only doing half theology and that's about as exciting as a half-baked cake I like the word exciting I was looking at definitions for exciting sometimes you just look up definitions for words just a fun thing to do it's a good hobby Um, I like one of the definitions is this it produces a state of increased energy or activity that's exciting So here's my my thought I want to leave with. Is your theology exciting? Does it create in your life, in your Christian life, an increased state of energy or activity? That should be the case. That should be the case. And as we close, um, just know this. We're just ramping up this idea of adoption because the next verse starts to talk about our inheritance because we're children of God. So we're not done with the topic of adoption. There's more that's going to come there. But we don't want to lose the application of it, which is that I'm a child of God he's your father in Christ let's pray Lord we thank you so much for your your abundant grace for your love for us our loving father that each, each person in Christ has a deep and personal relationship with you it can be soiled it can be harmed through sin and things like that Lord but it's positional in its nature we're adopted we are so grateful for your abiding love your unchanging love, your love that endures forever. We're so grateful, Lord. Let us just, let us just live our lives from a place of knowing who we are in Christ, that our motives would be, would be, uh, would be love, gratitude, your glory. Lord, we, we just pray that with all the, the busyness of life and the hustle and bustle of everything else that we would, we would embrace the depth of our relationship with you and not for a moment to take it for granted or to downplay it or to miss out on it or to have just religion without acknowledging this, this beautiful, wonderful, eternal thing. God, you're our heavenly father. We thank you. We love you for who, who we are in Christ. And help us discover it more as we continue reading through Romans and talking about our inheritance and what that means and all that. We pray that we would just be stirred up with vigor, with fire in our veins, Lord, with with passion in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.